0: Well, howdy, Hootah Thunkers. This is the host of the Huda podcast, Zeb, coming at you with episode 149, titled JFK and the Coconut. Uh, this story about JFK and the Coconut is sort of well known amongst historians and regular people. Um, some people know about it. It's a fun little ditty, but I wanted to dive in a little bit more, and I think there's a decent amount of people that may have never heard this story. So we'll get into that. First, let's do that recommendation segment. Pretty simple one here. Uh, Next Level Chef. It's a show that I wouldn't have heard of if it weren't for a little billboard that said, check us out right after the Super Bowl. I didn't even watch the Super Bowl this year. <laughs> Shannon and I just asked um, the uh, our Amazon speaker for updates on the scores throughout the game. But I do remember that this show was coming out right after. So I checked it out on Hulu. Yes, it is my, it, it is, it isn't. A typical kind of show and if it weren't for my wife shannon i probably wouldn't watch any reality competition show like this at all it's not using my thing i like sci-fi fantasy but i'm glad i do watch these kind of shows now because it's a different kind of niche and gets you in a nice mellow headspace to watch a competition it started with the Great British Baking Show, which is such a happy, feely baking show, very different from a lot of things other things Gordon Ramsay does, like next level chef, but I love Great British Baking Show. My dad even referenced it during our wedding. He's like, I don't know if you guys still watch this during his speech. And I was like, Yes, we do. We love that show. Uh, but I like a lot of other shows too. Then, you know, we binged a couple seasons of Master Chef, another one of Gordon Ramsay's big shows. Well, the latest food competition show we're obsessed with is Next Level Chef, starring Gordon Ramsay. We love watching Gordon; I think he's a great. Shannon loves celebrity chefs. I never was really into him at all, uh, but after dating and now marrying—excuse Sh- me, marrying Shannon—we you know, go places. She'll see a, a billboard of some dude I've never heard of. She's like, "Oh my gosh, that guy's famous." I'm like okay, so that's Shannon's thing, and I'm starting to get into it too. I particularly love the fact that Gordon Ramsay is known for being a hard ass. He's known for being quite rude or whatever, very tough on his the people he's teaching how to cook uh, for his shows that are for adults. But when he's working with children, such as his own children, or I think he has like a show that's like master chef or something he turns into the sweetest guy on the planet he's like oh that's okay you'll he's very encouraging and he's less like oh you don't care you know <laughs> so um yeah it's, it's a his personality comes out in his shows and i like that the plot of the show is chef gordon ramsey naisha errington and richard blaze recruit talented chefs and take them under their wings as they face unique cooking challenges in one-of-a-kind culinary gauntlet which is the goal of finding the food's world's the food world's newest superstar, which is a very that's a very uh, simplistic um, summary of the show. There's a lot more to it, um, which I didn't think would be that more difficult to summarize. So here I go. It is in Vegas, and the three storied kitchen makes this show unique. There's the basement kitchen, which is dull has dull knives, very little options for cooking utensils and stuff there's the middle kitchen which is like a standard level mid-level restaurant kitchen and then the third level is a kitchen with really expensive equipment i mean the sharpest knives um where the basement doesn't even have a blender The, the top floor has the best most expensive blender in the world and all this stuff and then you know On top of that, the levels are important because depending on how the competition is going, chefs will be stationed in the the nicest kitchen on top or the worst kitchen on the bottom or in the middle. Uh, The contestants don't even know what ingredients they're going to get though the ingredients are lowered on a platform through the three levels starting the third floor they get the first pick up in the nicest kitchen they get the first pick of whatever so they get the, the the filet mignon the new york strip they get the lobster and then the second floor gets a second dibs and the basement gets the last picked ingredients like seriously one of them had a protein of chicken livers if you know anything chicken livers are like two dollars a pound or something and they're gross usually they're fed to like your dog or something i mean they're not I, Chan and I try to make them, they're gross, I hated it. I like liver, I don't like chicken liver. So that just gives you an idea of how it works. So it sort of sets it up that way. And it is kind of relevant to another Netflix show, a Netflix movie, I cannot think of the name of it, but it was a, port, a Portuguese movie about a certain kind of prison where food was lowered from the top level all the way down. It was a really cool thriller. And this, I think whoever come up with this show for Next Level Chef was inspired by that pretty cool idea. So now for the main event, um, check out Next Level Chef. But now we're going to be talking about JFK and the coconut. John Fitzgerald Kennedy was born May 29th, 1917 during the world War, during world War I. And at the age of 43 on January 20th, 1961, he would become the second youngest U.S. president and the 35th president of the country's history. He would infamously be assassinated on November 22nd, 1963. Like that's world news that he was assassinated. If you ask someone on the street what the first thing they think of when you bring up JFK, they will almost certainly say his death his assassination. But the man lived a colorful life. (laughs) A lot went on in JFK's life. Today's episode is about one small story from his life before he ever became president of the free world. This is JFK and the coconut. I have some images on the blog here of JFK and his crew during World War II. pretty mean. really i'll use a lot of pictures here and jfk is very photogenic he's a handsome dude That's Why they think he was elected many young uh, many young americans of all backgrounds volunteered for the military service in 1941 for world war ii including young jfk he was 26 years old when he almost died in action serving the, in the south pacific a japanese destroyer ran into his patrolled torpedo boat this event lasted like eight days and when it was all over two heroism awards were given out through it all, a coconut was involved. This coconut would go from the waters of the South Pacific to the Oval Office. It was one of those dark, dark nights. With no moon, the clouds blacking out all the stars on August 1st, 1943. The patrol torpedo boat PT-109 was in the Black Blackett Strait, uh, just south of the Columbangara of the Solomon Islands. PT-109 was was the was under orders to run silently through the night to avoid being detected by enemies. At the helm was Skipper Kennedy, JFK, a lieutenant junior grade. He scanned the horizon and spotted the quote unquote Tokyo Express is what they called it. It was the name that U.S. naval personnel gave to the Japanese destroyers tasked with escorting supplies and soldiers to Guadalcanal. Apparently this it's convoy of of uh, of Japanese destroyers on the Tokyo Express was quite deadly. You don't want to mess with them. PT-109 was just a little torpedo patrol boat, not very big at all. And it fired 30 torpedoes, or it and its other PT boats fired 30 torpedoes at three battleships and one escort vessel. None of the torpedoes hit their targets. And I love little stories like that because what a splendid waste of taxpayer dollars. But I digress. I'm always thinking how the government wastes their money but anyway then the PT-109 received orders to return back to base like he shot 30 torpedoes none of them hit time to come home <laughs> four boats including the PT-109 got into formation to head back to the base um, but the formation made it so that their retreat was still covered it was you know they were headed back home it all was well until one boat suddenly broke off formation to pursue a Japanese target out of nowhere And that ship that broke off formation was the only boat with radar capabilities. So when it left, it left the other three boats practically blind, sitting ducks in the water. To make matters worse, the waters of the Solomon Islands have phosphorescent plankton residing within them, and the skippers of the blind boats knew that going through these glowing plankton plumes would leave a glowing trail behind their boats. This would be like a giant glowing arrow for aircraft. They were literally glowing targets to enemy aircraft. So they trudged onward towards what they thought was the direction of home base until or, or using only one of three engines. They were just sort of putting along. Hopefully the slowed retreat would disturb less glowing plankton, making them less obvious to enemy aircraft. That night, around two thirty AM, as the three boats retreated, Kennedy noticed a black shape coming from the PT coming for the PT one oh nine. His boat, his patrol torpedo boat. At First, he thought it was another patrol torpedo boat, but as it came closer, he noticed it was a Japanese destroyer vessel called called the Amagiri. Traveling at about 40 knots, which is fast, about to collide with the PT-109, Kennedy suddenly tried turning his boat to the right to aim at the enemy destroyer. He hoped he could get the torpedoes out and strike the enemy boat, but it was too late. From the time they noticed the Japanese destroyer to when it struck the PT-109, was about 10 seconds that's it all this happened damagiri rammed and cut the pt-109 in half the impact killed two u.s sailors instantly kennedy had just barely escaped his cockpit when the one when the 10 other survivors was left floating in the, in the south pacific in the dead of night So 11 guys still left two died there were 13 two of them died instantly now there's 11 in the water including the future president of america and now they're just stranded there not great pitch black night the sped off, and its massive wake put out all the flames from the impact explosion. Kennedy was clinging to wreckage from the PT-109 with four other members of the crew. He called out for survivors, and he heard replies from six other men. Uh, motor machinist uh, mate Patrick Mahan, Patrick McCone, Mick Mahone, Mahan, uh, was badly burned from the PT boat's fuel tank exploding on impact, and gunner mate Charles Harris was severely wounded. The six survivors, not by not by Skipper Kennedy's side, were about 100 yards away. So you had the five guys right there at the wreckage, clinging on to wreckage from the PT-109, and you had six other guys about 100 yards away from them calling out for help. They're about 100 yards away. But it took Kennedy three hours to rescue them in the pitch black night. So 100 yards, Kennedy's a, a renowned swimmer. I think he would be able to go out and get them real quick. It took three hours, pitch black, chaos. Once all were together, they talked about what to do next. And here's a quote from Kennedy, I think it was later on, not this night, but there's an, the beginning, at the first sentence of these. There's nothing in the book about a situation like this. A lot of you men have families, and some of you have children. What do you want to do? I have nothing to lose. That's what, that's what Kennedy said. Pretty badass. There wasn't much debate amongst the survivors. I suppose the dire situation made the sailors much more agreeable. There's no time to argue when people are dying in the middle of the South Pacific. They ditched the PT-109 wreckage and tried for swimming to the nearest island named, I kid you not, Plum Pudding Island. But Plum Pudding was three and a half miles away. The distance was manageable for Kennedy, who had been in the Harvard swim team, but he also took on the arduous task of towing McMahon, holding McMahon's belt in his teeth. Several of the other men were good swimmers, but two couldn't swim at all, and they had to be pushed and pulled along on a plank the entire distance. I'm not sure if the two sailors who couldn't swim were unable to do so because of injury or if they just didn't know how to swim, but I am always baffled by people who can't swim. They don't know how. I realize not everyone has the same opportunities as myself, and so not everyone gets the opportunity to learn how to swim as a child, but it just seems like such a huge risk. Like, every body of water water is a death sentence if you don't know how to swim, and it's especially baffling that two U.S. naval personnel didn't know how to swim. Mind-boggling. Now, the first to arrive at Plum Pudding Island after the three-and-a-half-mile swim was Kennedy himself, though uh, he was completely exhausted. The survivors of PT-109 quickly dubbed their refuge Bird Island because there was so much bird crap on the bushes. That's a fun little ditty. But I'm going to keep calling it Plum Pudding Island because that's funnier. McMahon, the burn victim that had been dragged by Kennedy for the last few miles or yards to the shore, Kennedy was that exhausted now i I, I misinterpreted this when i wrote it i thought he dragged both mcmahon and charles harris but he dragged one guy with his belt and his teeth i've I've had to drag people myself in a swim before it is insanely frustrating awkward and just sucks the energy out of you at an astonishing rate and i will note on when i did that because it's a bit kind of important that i didn't do it too much i should note the time that i had to drag someone in the water was when i was a teenager my friend Adam and I were swimming in a river in upstate Pennsylvania. Adam got unexpectedly swept under and panicked, as I'm sure most people would panic in that situation. To keep him from panicking himself to the point of drowning, I approached him and began to drag him ashore. I'm a decent swimmer, but he was punching and kicking and I made very little progress. Luckily, my dad was watching from a rock about eight feet above the water. He jumped in, took over the rescue, you know, so that's that's what it was. So my experience is very limited. But I have a vague idea as to how hard it is to drag people while swimming for just a few yards. Back when I was a teenager, a teenage athlete working out regularly, it was in football and stuff, and younger, it was taxing as hell. Now I'm 30-year-old, work-from-home dude that goes to Planet Fitness like three times a week. I doubt I could even swim... Drag someone a few yards at this point. I cannot imagine swimming three and a half miles in the pitch black in the Pacific Ocean in enemy waters with not one teenager, but a full grown man in tow by the teeth. That's insane to me. I don't know how Kennedy did it. And now, reading this, you know, you've heard Kennedy was this. Ooh, Kennedy was this uh, war hero and stuff, but reading this, it does make sense. He, he took charge. I mean, he, he helped these men survive. Once he had a, a chance to regain some strength, Kennedy swam to Ferguson Passage. The Passage was commonly patrolled by American PT boats, so he thought maybe he could signal for help. Swimming over sharp coral reefs for over an hour in the night, Kennedy eventually gave up on the idea of being rescued that night. He began swimming back to Plum Pudding Island to be with his crew, uh, but the current that night was deceptively strong and Kennedy nearly drowned trying to get back to his crew before he gave up and settled on Leorava Island, southeast of Plum Pudding Island. So he's sleeping on a completely different island from his crew. Crazy. And I do have some information. I have some pictures of Plum Pudding Island. It is tiny. It's like, yeah, and it, it's now called Kennedy Island or the local name of Solo Island, also known as Plum Pudding Island, um, also by these crewmates Bird Island is a 1.17 hectare or 2.9 acres. It's like just under three acres. Uninhabited Island in Solomon Islands and was named after JFK uh, following an incident involving Kennedy during his World War II naval career. Kennedy Island lies 15 minutes by boat from Gizo and the uh, provincial capital of the western province of Solomon Islands. Looking at images of Plum Pudding Island, it's tiny. It, it looks like nothing. I I mean, these guys got here and now they can at least rest, but there, there's no way that there's food or fresh water. I don't know. Of course, they had to keep moving. The crew spent the night on Plum Pudding Island and Kennedy on Leo Rava Island. They regrouped as soon as possible. Instead of just sitting and waiting for rescue, they decided to get up and move. They began swimming from island to island, Looking for water and food to sustain them for as long as possible. Ensign George Ross accompanied Kennedy in exploring the last island in the chain that's called Nauru Island. From Nauru, they were able to see Ferguson Passage, that place where a lot of U.S. patrol boats and a lot of patrol boats go through. They sneaked down to the beach and discovered a Japanese wreck where they were able to get their hands on a care package full of Japanese candy. You know? And now candy may not be the most nutritional have the most nutritional value, but it does have calories. It does have carbs. You can get a little more energy and it's a major morale booster. Imagine you just spent days of some of the worst days of your life and you're like candy. You've been deprived of any kind of nice thing for yourself and you're like, here's some candy. It'd be amazing. Amazing. I've heard stories of people in survival situations and they come across a candy bar. I've heard of that and it's they describe it as one of the most joyful moments of their lives because it's just being deprived of something and all of a sudden, all of a sudden you just get this luxury not far from the japanese candy that the kennedy and ensign ross found a uh, canoe stashed in some bushes and then spotted two guys paddling away in a different canoe they approached the men the very next day and found they were coast watchers for the allies they're known as like scouts uh, their names were Gasa and ironi kumana the islanders canoe couldn't carry all the survivors and it could barely hold two men so they couldn't just take them out of there so these allied scouts helped the allies by reporting on japanese positions during the war but they did not speak english usually and uh biyuku by- gasa and Ironi Kamana were no exception they did not speak any english at all communication was difficult so kennedy um did something a little bit different at uh, biyuku sort of suggested took off this little piece of a coconut from a local tree, or a nearby tree, handed it to him, and was able to communicate through hand gestures and stuff. Hey, why don't you write a message on this? We'll take it to people. On August 6, 1943, Kennedy carved a message into a green coconut that read "Naru Isle dot dot dot, commander dot dot dot, native knows posit, posit, position, dot dot dot, he can pilot dot dot dot, 11 alive, need small boat Kennedy as it was all written on this like piece of a coconut that these two guys in a canoe had to like sh- give away and be like look at this we got some people the and Ironi Kamana took the coconut message this message after rowing their dugout canoe at great risk uh, through 35 nautical miles (that's 65 kilometers of hostile waters patrolled by the Japanese was then delivered to the nearest allied base at Rendova The next morning, the two men returned with a letter from Australia Coast Coast Watcher Commander Lieutenant A. Reginald Evans. The letter informed Kennedy to travel with the islanders to Gomu Island in in the Blackett Strait. The islanders uh, hid Kennedy under a pile of palm leaves and paddled him to meet with Evans. At this point, PT-109 had sank six days ago. When Kennedy reached Rendova, uh, he told the rescuers they had to let him guide them through the reefs and shallows on the night of august 7th kennedy signaled the rescue boats with three shots from his revolver and a full from a rifle while standing in a canoe he didn't anticipate the, the recoil from the rifle and was knocked off balance falling off or fell falling out of the little boat and into the water i thought that was a fun little detail With <laughs> so the signal shots he shot and <laughs> fell right off the boat pt-157 rescue boat arrived at the rendezvous point and pulled kennedy aboard on the morning of August 8th, the remaining PT-109 crew survivors were rescued. They reached the U.S. base at Rendova at 5.30 a.m. The ordeal was finally over. The island scouts, Biyuku Gasa and Ironi Kamana, had enabled the ensuing return to Alas- Alasana and the successful American rescue operation in the 7th and 8th of August. Kennedy was awarded the Purple Heart and the Navy and, 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 the Navy and Marine Corps Medal, the only U.S. president to receive such honors, uh, he was honorably discharged from the Navy in 1945. Ironi Kamani, Kamana died in 2014 at the age of 93, and Biyuku Kasa died in 2005 at the age of 82. Kennedy later did invite them to attend his presidential inauguration in 1961, which I thought was cool, but the pair never made it. Um, there's a couple of stories as to why. The, they think that they were either duped en route, um, the Solomon Islands capital by British or the, they thought they were duped by British colonial officials who sent other representatives instead. Another version of the story is that they were turned back by British officials at the airport who did not speak English. The story from Biuku's descendants is that the British officials did not want to send Biuku and Ironi uh, because they were simple village men and not well dressed by the British authority standard. The legend of these two men survives to this day though by among by the uh, day among their descendants in the western province of Solomon Islands. So they are remembered. Another scout, Alessa Basili, wrote of his experience during 1942 Japanese landing at Bunda in scouting in western Solomons. He expressed sadness and anger over the unjust lack of recon- recognition, recognition uh, or award given to Solomon Islanders for their service during the war. However, in recognition of his help, Gasa lived in a house paid for by the Kennedy family, a National Geographic, and and by Brian and Sue Mitchell. So they all pitched in together and helped pay for his house. Kennedy's also constructed a house for Eroni Kumana. It collapsed in the 2007 tsunami, Um, but Kumana survived the storm and lived to 93. So interesting story. Thought you might like that. Well, the cool thing is this coconut became an ornament on the Oval Office, the presidential JFK's desk. They still have it today. It's, I think it's in a museum now. Um, looks kind of weird, but kind of cool at the same time. They took this sliver of coconut, they put some epoxy around it, and it's like a dome-shaped ornament that just sits on the desk. So pretty cool how a coconut was used as a message to save the future president's life in World War II. The whole reason I was turned on to this um, – Story was I was watching History Buffs. It's one of my favorite YouTube series. They put in so much research and effort to look into historical movies and see how accurate they are and what's cool about them and tell you cool stories that maybe the movie didn't have time to express. And They did one on the movie 13 Days with Kevin Costner, and it's all about JFK during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I was scrolling through the comments of the video, and someone said, you see that coconut on his desk? It has a really cool story, and they gave a synopsis of what I just told you. So, uh, Yeah. That coconut stayed on JFK's desk until the day he died. So I thought you might like it. Thanks for listening, Huda Thunkers. Tune in next week. Hope you enjoyed. Catch you later.